You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. All right. Uh, well, before, before I, I pray for us, what I want to do is um, do a little bit of a look back and, and then pray so that we can look forward. And so um, last week in Ruth, we, we laid the foundation of, of kind of where we're going in this book um, and talked about how Naomi um, had a perspective of God that he was, he was great and that he was in control, but that he wasn't good. And then we also got the view of Ruth, who saw that God was great and that he was good. And so over these last two weeks um, in my life, um, there's been a lot going on um, health-wise. And with that, it's been quite a struggle <laughs> to, um, to live in the reality that God is both great and that he is good, even when it doesn't feel like it. And so with that in mind, um, I was thinking uh, and reminded of, some lyrics from a song um, that kind of speak to that situation for me um, and where I find my hope and where we're going. And then I'm going to read um, some scripture for us as a prayer. So it's a song by, by Trip Lee called Take Me There. And it says, Hey, I don't know about you, but I can't wait till the day when I'll be with my Lord and everything is okay. And I'll, just be, um, and I'll be just like him and so my sin ain't in the way. Basket in his glory, that's where I want to stay. A place where shadows give way to the real and circumstances can't change the way that I feel. Joy in my Savior that Satan can't steal because he's been defeated. Yeah, you know the deal. The real good life. I can't wait. Please take me soon. Until then, I'll be praising in the waiting room. Fighting by his grace. Can't wait to embrace the groom. Until then, I'm like, I just want to go there. I'm only breathing your air. Father, hear my prayer. Take me there. Take me there. I just want to see you brighter than I'm used to. Finally seeing clear. Take me there, take me there, take me there. And so this, this spoke to me, um, and in light of last week's message, just the encouragement of that regardless of the circumstances that we have here on earth, that we have a Heavenly Father who loves us so much, and that he points us to that redemption and that love and that foundation that we have in Christ, that we will be with him in heaven in that glory. And so with that um, um, in mind, I was reading through Ephesians this last week, Ephesians 4, 14 through 19. And this is a prayer that Paul prayed, praying for spiritual strength for the people in Ephesians. And it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so, as we're walking in this life and we encounter these things, that's my prayer for us this morning, is that we can rest in the fullness of God that points us towards heaven, that points us towards the fact that we are going to be with him. And so with that, I'm going to leave us with a verse from Revelations 21. For um, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be any more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So God, I know that that you are good, and we pray and we seek that day when we are going to be with you in heaven, and there will no longer be any pain, there will no longer be any mourning, and that our physical bodies and our emotions and, and everything will be healed. Our right relationship will be restored with you as we are with you in heaven and glorifying your name. And we just so eagerly and anxiously anticipate and wait for that day. But as we are still here on this earth in the midst of brokenness, that we be still praising you in this waiting room as we are in this, in this, this waiting place. Um, we know that you are good. We know that you are great. We pray this in your name. Amen. For those who may not know who I am, my name is Royce. I'm one of the elders, and I have the privilege of bringing God's word to us today. As Chris mentioned, out of the book of Ruth, our second of four weeks in the book of Ruth. I want to begin today by asking you a couple questions. And if you were here last week, these questions would make sense because they're out of the first chapter of Ruth. Do you believe in a sovereign God who is in control of everything? And the follow-up question is, do you believe in a sovereign God but struggle, at least at times, with whether or not he's a good God? Whether or not he's a good God. We especially may struggle with the acknowledgement of God's goodness during times of suffering or conflict, of crisis, or even just of stress. We think that if he is a good God, I shouldn't be going through these things. We might not say it, but we often feel that. Last week we saw in Ruth 1 that Naomi had suffered greatly. There was a famine, she lost her husband, she lost her sons, she lost everything. And she, had a, she was in a foreign land, so it was even more difficult. And she knew, because she was a true Israelite from Bethlehem, that God was great. I don't think we, we felt that she didn't question that so much or his existence, or anything like that. But what she had a hard time with, in light of her suffering, is that God was good, particularly to her. Particularly to her. Today we're going to continue in Ruth, and looking in chapter 2, which has a little bit different theme to it. Today we're going to see that God's goodness is not as far away as we might think it is. And that God's goodness, specifically his grace, is, often has a human face we're going to see that God's grace often has a human face. Just a little background, just in case you weren't here last week, to set the stage. Uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth, is set in the times of the judges. The judges, the theme of judges is that everyone did what is right in their own eyes. It was not a good time in the history of Israel. A lot of rebellion, a lot of disobedience to God, and a lot of stories of that. So Ruth was during, the book of Ruth is during that time. Naomi, her husband, her two sons, because of a famine in Israel, go to Moab. They leave their home, they leave their land, they leave their family, they leave everything behind. And while in Moab, over the course of, of um, uh, 10 years, uh, Ruth, I mean, uh, Naomi loses her husband first and then her two sons. Her two sons had married, uh, but were childless at the time. So she starts, decides to head back. She had heard that there's food in Israel, so she decides to leave Moab and come back, and she tells her daughter-in-laws to stay behind. One does. Ruth chooses not to. 
And when Naomi arrives back in Israel, people go, hey, is this Naomi? It's, you know, it's been 10 years and you're alone. Uh, where's, where's the husband? Where's the, where's the sons? And uh, she says she wants to change her name to Mara because she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly to me. Bar- Mara means bitter. She left Naomi and wanted to return Mara. Naomi believes God's sovereign. She's just having a hard time believing he's good, and she's hopeless. Meanwhile, we're introduced also to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who is loyal to Naomi. And uh, we, she had probably heard the stories of Israel and, and, and the 10 years that she spent with, or some of that time at least, she spent with her husband and, and Naomi and uh, Elimelech, that she heard about the God of Israel. She heard about the stories of uh, the Exodus and Genesis and all those kind of things. And when Naomi left, she decided to stay with Naomi. And we read in, ver- in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, what I would call basically uh, Ruth's conversion to God, from a pagan worshiper to a worshiper of the true God. And she says this, when Naomi, she's saying this to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. And this next line is the essential one. For your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, or more, also if anything but death parts me from you. She had never been to Israel. It wasn't like she went on vacation and said, I really like this spot, I want to live here. Nope, she'd never been there. She chooses to move there. She knows Naomi, but she also knows Naomi's pain and Naomi's bitterness which isn't a great environment, but she's loyal to Naomi even in the midst of that bitterness. And she completely leaves behind her family, her biological family and her nationality, and moves to Israel. And in, 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 in Ruth chapter 2, it picks up at the end of Roman, in the end of Ruth 1, Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, just at the beginning of the barley harvest. That sets the context for today. They arrive in town. So will you stand with me as we read Ruth chapter 2 and continue our story. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field, that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, 
Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an epah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story, this event in the lives of some so long ago, and yet the truth of the gospel and the truth that you have for us are as relevant today as it was then. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this testimony, but especially thank you for your spirit to enlighten our minds and hearts to understand what you'd have us to know today. And we just move forward, Lord, with the expectation of your spirit uh, giving us that insight, all of us. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. My theme today is that when we face the ups and downs of life, um, let me rephrase that. My theme today is when we face the ups and downs of life, uh, we can face them because God's grace has a human face. God's grace has a human face. We all have different ups. Sometimes things are going well and we're, we're glad and we're on fire. And sometimes, like Chris shared, things aren't going so well. But either way, whether you're on the upswing or the downswing, and our life is sometimes a roller coaster that way, we know that God's grace has a human face. And first of all, we see this in three ways in this chapter. Three ways in this chapter. First of all, we see that God's grace has a human face when God's word becomes our way. When God's word becomes our way. 
Where do I see that? Well, in verse, in verse 2, let's just begin there. He says in verse 2, When Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, whose sight I shall find favor. This whole chapter is set in the context of gleaning grain. In fact, gleaning, the concept of gleaning, is mentioned 12 times in this chapter. That's what they're doing, so we should pay attention to that. And gleaning uh, is an aspect of the harvest that God established in his word so that the people who had plenty, particularly landowners, would be able to share what he has graciously supplied them that he could give, they could be able to share that with those who are less fortunate, who are poor, who are not landowners. And we see this in a number of places in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, for example, chapter 10, he says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, and then listen to this, to walk in his ways, to walk in his ways, to live a particular way according to God's ways. And what are those ways? To love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments and statutes, which I am commanding you, for your good. He wants them to walk in his way because he is the one God, but also, he says, for your good. And what are those commands and statutes that he wants them to walk in? Well, just a few verses later, he gives us some of those. We're not going to look at them all, but he says in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 10, he says, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, and great and mighty and awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, And then here he says this, he executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Then he continues, that's who the God is. Then he continues, so you Israel, love the sojourner. You love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He reminds them of all his surpassing greatness. He, He then commissions them to walk in his ways and by loving him first. And even in his greatness, God cares about the justice that is due. Interesting language. The justice that is due, that is owed to the fatherless, to the widow, and to the sojourner. What what these people have in common, among other things, is that they are all landless. They do not own land. In agricultural society, land is important. So therefore, these people are uh, insecure, often very poor and very vulnerable. So therefore, God says, justice is due them because they're in this condition. And then God says in there, therefore, you shall love the sojourner. I'm going to give them justice, but you, Israel, are to love them because you were sojourners. It's it's, it's important that we see that. He says, I, God, was gracious to you and rescued you out of slavery when you were sojourners in a foreign land. Now I want you to treat the poor among you the same way, the same way. In other words, God's grace is to have a human face. And then he goes on in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, and he gets a little bit more specific of what those commands are supposed to, supposed to do. He says, You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourners or to the fatherless or take the widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember. So treat them right. Treat them the way I said. Why? Why do we treat them that way? But you shall remember that you were slave in Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Again, God is trying over and over again in the Old Testament. I redeemed you, therefore I want you to live a certain way. And that way is that you're as generous to other people, especially the unfortunate, the poor, the hurting, as I am to you when you were that way. 
And then he goes on and even lays more specificness. Okay, what does that look like, Lord? He says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheath in the field, you shall not go back and get it. So if you're harvesting and you time in bundles and you drop one, don't turn around and get it back. You shall, it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Again, look at the promise that he gives. I want you to take care of the poor, and the repercussions is the Lord will bless you in your labor as he does this. And when you beat the olive trees, you shall not go out over, uh, over them again, but it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather grapes from your vineyard, you shall not strip it all bare, it shall be for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. You guys getting the theme here? And then he says, You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. And in the book of Leviticus, he gives one other detail that's important for the second chapter of Ruth, and that he tells him in Leviticus, When you harvest your fields, don't harvest around the edges, the far edges, and don't harvest in the corners. So you harvest your field, but you leave a little bit. And you take it there. Why, he says, so that these are the gleanings of the harvest, and you leave them for the poor and the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. So he even gets more specific while they harvest. That's the context in which we have here with the book of Ruth. God's word has a lot to say about how people who have received God's grace are to extend grace to others, especially those in need. Over and over again, this in the New Testament, but particularly the Old Testament, in these laws. We often think of the laws as confining us in our moral code, how to treat each other. But much of the law is how to treat each other in the graciousness that God has treated us. God's word informs and directs the way we are to live. So that is to reflect God's greatness and his generosity to us. In the ups and downs of our lives, we, sh- we uh, all have times where we need God's grace in our life. We all need God's grace, sometimes more obvious than others. And there are other times when we can need to be givers of God's grace to other people who need it. It works both ways. In this passage in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, he's talking about both. The poor who need God's grace and the landowners who can give God's grace. And this is true not only of the Old Testament, but even too of the New Testament, the teaching. And we could look at a number of different things, but I just want to highlight one. For example, when God's Word tells us to gather as a church, as a Christian community, on a regular basis. And, and we do that at Red Sea um, through our Sunday gathering, like we are here now in our home communities. And, we, and God said these gatherings, when you get together, are a primary way where He will work His grace, their means of grace, in us and through us. He works in our hearts, and He works through us to other people's hearts. And at Red Sea, when we gather, we gather on Sundays and during the week in home communities. That's just the primary. It's not the only venue, but it's the primary venue where we try to walk out what God has instructed us to do in His Word. And we gather weekly to remember and celebrate that we too were once slaves to sin and embattled to the devil and, and oppressed by the world. But now we have deliverance and freedom in Christ. That's what we are to do every single week, including today. But because of this deliverance and freedom, we are, have the opportunity and the obligation to, to do the one another's of the New Testament, over 51 another's of the New Testament, to love one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. And even admonish one another and confess our sins to one another. The the one another's are things that we do according to God's word that are mutual. 
We do it together. We do it, they're reciprocal. I, I love you, you love me. I talk to you, you talk to me. I encourage you, you encourage me. They go back and forth, back and forth. It's just not one-sided. And it requires face-to-face exchange. And that's what God has said. Where do you do that? You do that when you're together. That's how you live that out. That's how you give it. As I thought about God's provision of gleaning in the Old Testament, as I was thinking through it this week, it occurred to me that um, the extra grain or the extra olives or the extra grapes were not to be delivered to the poor. The poor, the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless were to come and get them. Okay? They weren't supposed to gather all that, take it to a distribution center and distribute it. They were supposed to leave in the field very generously, but the poor had to come and get it, the widows. And this was not easy work. This is, this is hard work. They had a harvest, just like everybody else do. Everybody else did. And, and sometimes we, we, uh, we need God's grace, and we say, you know what, why doesn't somebody bring that to me? Why doesn't somebody bring this benefit to me? And yet God's word, in the analogy of the gleaning is, it's there, go get it. Go to where he says it's supposed to be. And for us, that would be in the gatherings, and Sunday, and in home community, and those kind of places. Does that make sense? And I have talked, and I'm sure you have too, with people who have, have not been part of the gathering very often, or have not been very consistent in home community, and, and for a while. And, and when you ask them why they haven't been there, they say something about you, some, there's all sorts of reasons, and, and, but sometimes, often, they say, well, I'm going through a really hard time. So I, I just have not made it to church. It's a burden that I just don't want to add as I'm going through hard times. Which, if you think about it, in light of God's word, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They, they need God's grace, and yet they stay away from the specific means of grace he's put in their life to get to God's grace. But what, what it really means, as they go down to it, is when you cut yourself off from God's grace, he has said in the word, this is how I give you those things. Oh, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't need that. You're, first of all, not believing his word, but ultimately you're not believing God. And you're not believing not only in God, but you're not believing God's a good God, that he's provided grace and peace and all those things for us when we, we keep it at arm's length. When God's word becomes our way, we are not only remembering God's generosity to us through the gospel, but we are to be putting ourselves in the pathway of God, continually working the gospel in us and through us. Remember in Deuteronomy, he said, to walk in the ways for your good, for your good. Yes, there is a burden, there is a cost, there is a hardness to it, but ultimately, to walk in that way is for your good. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 2, excuse me, and verse 2. And when Ruth Moabite, she says, hey, let me go out in the field and glean among, and hopefully I'll find, uh, be, find um, after him in sight who I find favor. He's say, she's going, I'm, I'm hitting the field. I don't know where I'm going. I sure hope somebody has read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and they're going to be generous to me. Now, Ruth is fatherless. She left her home. Ruth is a widow, and Ruth is a sojourner. She's all three, and she shows up, and she does this. Ruth apparently had learned about God's word said about gleaning and the gleaning rights of the people and for her condition in life. She says, well, I fit. I'm going to do it. 
And she also, though, knows that it depends on the generosity and the grace of somebody else in whose favor I might see. She and Naomi need someone to extend to them both justice and grace. That's what she's looking for. And she is hoping that God's grace has a human face. We can face the ups and downs of life because God's grace has a human face when we, uh, when God's word becomes our way. When God's word becomes our way. That was my first point. Now the second one. God's grace has a human face when our faith moves from belief to behavior. When our faith moves, moves us from belief to behavior. Where do I get that? Well, we're still actually in verse 2. We have not moved on. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite says, Naomi, let me go out into the field and glean, and hopefully I'll find some favor by somebody. So Ruth decides to put her newfound faith to action. I believe in this God. I've dedicated myself to this God. I hear in the word that we're supposed to do this, so I'm going to do what the word says. And she decides to demonstrate her belief in her behavior. Now, notice when we notice Naomi's response in verse 2. Naomi simply says, Go, my daughter. Go, my daughter. Basically, she doesn't say much, does she? Naomi makes no suggestions or gives no pointers. Naomi's from Israel. She was raised in Bethlehem. Ruth is a foreigner. And Naomi has no pointers, no advice. She is still hopeless. She's apathetic. She's given up. But not Ruth. What's especially missing here is any direction she could have given Ruth where to go. Well, how do we know this? Well, in verse 3, we're told that Ruth set out to gather grain, and she happened to come into part of the field of Boaz, who is from the clan of Elimelech, who happens to be Naomi's husband. What does that mean? She happened to come on the part. In the Hebrew, it literally means her chance chanced. Her chance chanced. Okay? Doesn't make sense in English, does it? Okay? It's a rhetorical device emphasizing that this is really improbable to happen. It's like rolling a dice twice. Okay? It just doesn't come out the same way both times. If it does, it's a miracle. That's what she's saying. She happened to come across the field, and it happens to be from Boaz, from the clan of Elimelech. She didn't know this. For Ruth, she just guessed. She took a chance. But in God's design, this was not luck. Now, we, the readers of the book of Ruth, have already been introduced to Boaz in verse 1. He doesn't show up until later, but he's introduced. The chapter ends, and now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, her husband, whose name was Boaz. But Ruth apparently did not know about Boaz. She didn't know about him, assumingly because Naomi never told her. Naomi never included her in all the extended family, even if they lived in town. Remember, she happened to go into the field of Boaz. It didn't say she was looking for it. She stumbled across it in her mind. And Ruth brings, when Ruth brings back the food she had gleaned, at the, end of the, at the end of the chapter, at the end of the story, we're told of Naomi's response. In verses 19, she says to her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, Naomi, says to her, where did you get this grain? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So Naomi says to her mother-in-law, whom she, whom she works, she said, the man's name who I am worked is, today is Boaz. And, and then we read Naomi's response. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And Naomi also said to her, also said to her, like the light bulbs go on, oh, 
the man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. I'm not going to go into what a redeemer is. We're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But not only does this guy uh, is a relative, a wealthy relative, but he's one who can have legal authority in our life. She forgot about him. Naomi seems surprised that Ruth was in the field of Boaz. And then after the fact, she remembers Boaz. In her hopelessness, remember how she had been, in her hopelessness, Naomi apparently had forgotten all about him. And now in God's sovereignty and God's graciousness, Ruth interconnects with him and connects in his field. Naomi awakens to the hand of God in his events. She says, blessed be God for what has happened. She has now found new hope, new hope. Now let's go back to Ruth. She heads out into the field to glean and picks, and picks one owned by Boaz. And we read in verse 4 that Boaz comes out from Bethlehem, and Boaz shows up and says to the guy and his, his uh, reapers, the guy in charge, the foreman, he says, who is that young woman? He, he doesn't know who she is. She's not part of the crew. She's not part of the normal people. This is the first day she's been there. And the servant in charge of the reaper says, the guy in charge says, oh, she's the Moabite woman who came back with Ruth. And, uh, came back with Naomi, excuse me. And, and she said, please, can I glean from the sheaves of your reapers? So she came and she's continued all morning, uh, except for a short rest. I find that interesting. <laughs> he included that she did take a break, okay? It was just a 10-minute coffee break, but she took the break, okay? So uh, Ruth asks permission to reap, doesn't know whose field it is, and then works hard. And then she's working hard. She even takes just a short break. And then we're told about Boaz giving Ruth some extra benefits and privileges, which we're going to look at in a few minutes. I'm going to set those aside for a minute. I want to continue with Ruth right now. But first, I want to look at Ruth's response to Boaz. So in the storyline, Boaz is real generous with her. But we're talking about Ruth now. So she responds to that generosity and says to him, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why? Interesting. Why have I found favor with your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She, as far as she knows, she's just a sojourner. She has no idea who he is. She has no idea of anything else. Why are you being kind to me? Remember, she had asked when she left, I'm going to leave and go reap. Hopefully, I'll find somebody's favor. And now she's asking Boaz, why are you being fa uh, favorable to me? Boaz's answer is really, really important to us. Boaz answered her, he says, all that you have done, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, not Naomi's husband, your husband, has been fully told to me, fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Ruth did not know Boaz, but he knew of her. Never met her, but he had known of her. Her reputation preceded her. Boaz acknowledges Ruth's behavior as a demonstration. All that she had done was her behavior was a demonstration of her new beliefs in Yahweh, the God of Israel. She saw, he saw in this, her as a woman who had suffered the loss even of her own husband and of her family and of her nationality and yet still lived in faithful sacrifice to Naomi and according to the word of God. And he was impressed with that. And then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a reward be given you by the Lord 
the God of Israel under whose wings you have taken refuge. Boaz acknowledges that both God's working in Ruth's life and he acknowledges Ruth's life in response to God's working in it. He acknowledges God is working in your life. I see that. Everybody knows that. But we also see that you responded to God's working and your life demonstrates that. Ruth had sought refuge, safety, care, protection in the Lord God of Israel, and she had gotten it. And her belief that God had directed her, her belief in God had directed her behavior to be obedient to God's word and to serve Naomi. God's grace has a human face. And for Naomi, that face was the face of Ruth. Hear that. God's grace has a human face. And for Naomi, that face was the face of Ruth. Ruth's kindness and devotion to Naomi was lived out and seen by all these other people, the whole town of Bethlehem. Boaz says, what you have done has been fully told to me. The gossip in Bethlehem at the time was, wow, have you heard about that new woman Ruth and all that she has done? Boaz knows about Ruth's behavior and beliefs even before he ever met her. And then she shows up on the scene. This week, I was um, dropping Carly and the boys off at the airport. Um, They're going to the East Coast to see her mom. And Carter and Jesse and Zach are standing on the curb while Carly and I are wrestling the bags out of the back of the van. And they're standing there with their packs on and their pajamas, typical red-eye flights for kids. And Carter says, hey, Grandpa, who are those guys? And about that volume. And he points to two TSA off workers in their blue uniforms standing not too far away, like from here to Billy and Tara. And I look over, oh, they're airport security. And realizing that he probably doesn't understand what that means, I said, oh, they're police. They're police. So Carter goes, oh. And then turning, excuse me, turning to the two people, he raises his hand and loudly proclaims, may the force be with you. Caught him a little off guard, okay? And, and, and so they say, oh, oh, thank you. May the force be with you too. And okay, and so we, we had to talk to Carter about, you know, not everybody in security needs to have the force with them and those kind of things. And they doesn't have to tell them all about Darth Vader and all that kind of stuff. But, and, and as I drove away, I was thinking about it. It was kind of funny, but he was just so confident into it. He was just so sure that the force was going to be with these two cops. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, I think a lot of people want there to be a force with them, right? Some kind of supernatural, mystical entity that protects them and gives them power beyond their natural capabilities, Right? We want there to be a force. That's one reason that whole thing attracts us. And I even think that Christians sometimes think of God's goodness and his kindness and his grace in this way. We think that it should be some kind of mystical force that, that we want to surround our life. And when, when things are not going well, we say, well, the force must not be with me right now. And, and as I thought about that, that's really discouraging because it's not a force in that way. But yet we want it to be. We want it some inanimate, mystical object. What has God designed in his word for it to be? 
He designed it to be face-to-face, people-to-people, person-to-person. That's what he's designed it to be. And I thought about it. Carter's words did not send some mystical force their way, but yet in itself, Carter's words were really, in his naivety, a blessing on the cops. His, his words themselves was the act of grace and kindness to them, not the force. God's word is clear that our beliefs are, to demonst- are demonstrated in our behaviors. People knew what Ruth believed because they saw how she lived. They looked at her behavior. We should think about this for ourselves. When people see our behavior, what conclusions do they come to about our beliefs? When people see our behavior here and on the job and in the school and in our neighborhoods, And in the store, in any place, when they see our behavior, what conclusions would they draw about our beliefs, especially if we know those people and have regular contact with them? Do people see God's grace in our face? Do people see God's grace in our face? I could rephrase the question a little more personal. Who sees God's grace in your face? Who sees God's grace in your face? Naomi saw it in Ruth's. We can face the ups and downs of life because God's grace has a human face. When God's word becomes our way, when our faith moves from belief to behavior, and when the third one is when we use our blessings to be a blessing. When we use our blessings to be a blessing. Where do I get that? Well, that we see demonstrated in Boaz himself. In verse 1, we're introduced to him. Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The word, term, a worthy man, and when used of, in the army or used of soldiers, it would, it would be a man of valor. We would say in the case with, with Boaz being a businessman, a landowner, he was a man of integrity, a man of substance, Or in the New Testament, elders would be called, he's a a man above reproach. No charge can be brought against him. Nobody has something to say against Boaz. Especially in the time of judges, that was highly unusual. And I was thinking this week that if Jane Austen had written the book of Ruth, his name would be Mr. Darcy. His first words to his labor force were very telling of his character. The first words out of his mouth recorded in the book are telling of his character. When Boaz, and then behold, behold, it just happens that Boaz comes out that day um, in God's sovereign grace from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. This is a man open about his faith and his walk with God. He is uh, an anomaly in the times of judges and that everyone who, did for, uh, everyone who did was right in their own eyes, he did what was right in God's eyes. We know this. He, he even, listen to this, he even acknowledges God's presence with his field hands. Do you get that? He, he says to them, the Lord be with you. He's saying, may God's presence be here in the field as you're working hard under the hot sun working, um, gathering grain. He had the expectation that God was in that work, not just at the temple or at the time in the tabernacle. 
And it's remarkable for that man. And we know the workers, assumably influenced by Boaz, recognize this, that his wealth and his generosity was a, a sign of God's blessing. They say, may the Lord bless you. May, may he keep blessing you because you keep blessing us. Now Ruth's in the field working. Boaz shows up, notices working, does not recognize her, inquires of his foreman who she is. And we've already seen some of that. Already knowing of her, we read now he, is first, he first approaches Ruth. He sees her, he's told, he walks over to her, and he says something to her. And this is what he says. Now Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, go to the glean into the field and leave, and, and do not go to and glean in a field or leave this one, but keep, the, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young man not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Basically, he invites her to be a part of his harvesting crew. It was unheard of. She's a sojourner. She's a widow. She's poor. Her job, her role is to be on the outskirts picking up the scraps. He says, come be part of my crew. That's the first thing he says to her. And as we have already seen, Ruth asks, why? Why are you so generous to me? And again, he mentions her reputation of who she is. And then Boaz essentially prays a blessing on her. Verse 12. We've already seen this. The Lord repay you for what you have done, full of reward, given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have set refuge. Saying the words of blessing for Ruth is, is a kind thing for Boaz to do. He did not owe her a blessing. He did not owe her that. But after he does an act kind, invites her into be a part of a crew, he actually prays this blessing of kindness to her. And he shows that he's a devoted man of God. But the story doesn't stop with him praying that blessing on her. In verse 14, we read something that he, we don't catch it as much in our culture, but in their culture, when people read Ruth originally, this would have stood way out. Not only what he already done, taking a sojourner, made her part of the harvest, blessing her. But now he goes on in mealtime. He says, you know what? Come on over, eat here. Sit down with us. Eat this bread. Dip it into the wine. And she, went to the, she sat with the reapers, the harvesters, the men. Not with all the other sojourners. And he, he, he himself passed her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied. Now, we, we missed that. Not only did he invite her in to be part of the crew, but he, the landowner, hands her and serves her food. That was unheard of. It, the reapers didn't hand them food, much less the landowner. So she takes it, and then he instructs his young men. He says, let her glean among, uh, even among the sheaves. In other words, let her, don't just be on the outside. I want her to come in with the crew as they're harvesting. And, and, and as you pull things out, I want you to accidentally drop some, but don't go back. And when she picks it up, don't rebuke her. Leave it behind. Let her get it. And we're told, if I forget to say it, at the end of the day, she has over 30 pounds of grain that she takes back to Nomi. 30 pounds. That's a lot of grain in one day for, for this. And at mealtime, he, he, we have seen, he already blesses her, and he gives her the extra potion. Notice what Boaz did, and this is my point with all that. Notice what Boaz did. Boaz prays God's blessing on Ruth, and then he himself, in a way, fulfills his own prayer of blessing on Ruth. 
He does does this with humility and great cost to himself. Boaz prayed that God would be gracious to Ruth, and then Boaz acted graciously to Ruth. He fulfilled his own blessing on her, intentionally and at great cost. God's grace has a human face, and for Ruth, that face was the face of Boaz. God's grace has a human face, and for Ruth, that face was the face of Boaz. And when Ruth returns home with all the grain and leftover food, she tells Naomi what has happened and she has been in Boaz's field. Naomi responds, and she, sa- and she says, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, and we've already looked at this, but the, the prayer that she says, may he be blessed of the Lord, those whose kindness, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Uh, the living, Ruth and Naomi, and the dead, her husband and sons, the blessing is upon them also. Naomi also said, this man is a close relative of his redeemer. Naomi prays a blessing back to, to Boaz. May he be blessed by the Lord. But she recognizes that behind Boaz's blessing, behind Boaz's kindness to them, behind all that he's done to them is the Lord. He says, blessed him whose kindness has not forsaken the living and dead. The language is a little vague. Whose kindness? Boaz's kindness to Ruth or God's kindness? And I think it's intentionally vague. I think Ruth recognizes that Boaz was kind and to them and indirectly to their husbands. But because of Boaz, God has been kind. God has been generous to them. And she's now recognizing, she now understood that the blessing of Boaz was really God blessing them. She has even more hope. Earlier I mentioned that I've observed that some people, when they struggle with, uh, are in struggles in their life, they, whatever the case may be, they often isolate themselves from the church community. And in effect, they separate themselves from a primary means of grace intended to bring them grace in their time of struggle. But I've also observed there are other people who have ignored church community not because of life's struggles, but because actually things are going really well. Things are firing on all cylinders. Things are, are going great. And so they feel, you know what? I, I just don't feel like I need the church community. I just don't need that. When, when everything else is going on, it's just not necessary. It's just kind of inconvenient to show up at home community. I got a lot going on. Or at the gathering. There's other things I'd rather do. Okay, and, and maybe you yourself have felt that way sometimes. And for a moment, I'm sure we all have felt sometimes, is this really worth the price? I don't feel in need now to go. But here's the point of this, the point of this story. Maybe you're not in need of grace from somebody else, but maybe you're needed to give grace to somebody else. That's the way God has designed this to work. We're not all here to gathering to get. We're not just consumers. The same with home community. We don't go just because I like everybody there and we get something out of it. Sometimes you won't. You might not for a while. But maybe God has you in that place and because out of your life experience, what you've taught you, your maturity, whatever the case may be, maybe even in your weakness, you are there to give grace to one another. Remember to pray for one another, encourage one another even confess our sins to one another. 
God's design and desire is that we get our blessings through other people and that we give blessings to other people. And the only way to do that is to be together to do that. It's not the only way. It's the primary way. It's the biblical way to do that. Do people see God's grace in your face? Who sees God's grace in your face? I've said that we can face the ups and downs of life because God's grace has a human face. And when we, God's word becomes our way, when his faith moves us from belief to behavior, and when, our blessings, uh, when we use our blessings to be a blessing, God's grace has a human face, and ultimately that face is the face of Jesus, isn't it? God's grace has a human face, should instantly make us think of Christ. God did not redeem the world by sending a mystical force to be with us, did he? He sent himself. He came, boots on the ground, okay, sandals on the ground, face to face. He physically lived and was tempted and blessed other people, and he suffered and he died, and he rose physically from the dead. God, even though he was God, and still is, Jesus is God, he didn't hang on to that, the Bible says. He didn't stay up there and say, boy, I sure hope it goes well for you guys. But he put himself down here with us. He, and the Bible says he emptied himself, and that he, he took the form of a servant. He just didn't become a man. He didn't become a king. He didn't become a wealthy landowner. He became a servant. Not just a servant, but one born in the likeness of men. And, he, and when he was that way, he humbled himself even more and became obedient even to the point of death. Why? Why? Why did he do all that? The Bible tells us in numerous places the things, but the, the gist of it is that God loves people, and to demonstrate that love, he sent Christ to die for our sins. He sent the Christ to die for our sins. Remember, remember in Deuteronomy, he says, don't pervert justice to the sojourner or the fatherless or the widows, but you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and I redeemed you. That's the same for us as Christians. That's the same for us as Christians. We remember what God has done for us. God's grace has a human face when God's word becomes our way. God's face and that way is the way of Christ. God's grace has a human face when our faith moves from belief to behavior because we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not ourselves, it is the gift of God. But at the same time, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand for us to live. We have something to do. And when we are blessings with a blessing, he wants us to give. We have freely received. We are to freely give back. And the blessing, both of Old Testament and the New Testament, is the, the paradox, the mystery of it is, the more we actually give away, the more we receive back. That's what God's promised us. I want to invite you now to receive communion. To receive communion. We do this every week of receiving communion to remind us of the death and resurrection of Christ. And communion should remind us every week that God's grace has a human face, the face of Jesus. He came materially. He came in a body. He had a face. We don't have the look-alike, the, his, his uh, image, we don't know what he looked like physically, but we know he was here. That's intentional. God doesn't want us to worship those images. But he also reminds us, communion does, of that we were slaves to sin, but now we are redeemed. 
We're redeemed by Christ. And, and he has graciously provided us this grace and truth. So now because we have received grace and truth, we're reminded that we are able to be the face of grace to those around us. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you that in Christ and through faith in Christ, we can approach you with freedom and confidence. And Lord, we respond to your grace. We respond to your mercy. We respond to your kindness by um, being aware, at least, of your desire for us to be gracious and be the face of your grace to those around us. And we thank you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.